Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where in the world you are, the very first morning show of Ayn Rand Center UK, at least in the States. Welcome to Peak Off Wednesdays. We are glad you are here. I am joined, as always, by the irrepressible and always noteworthy James Valiant. James, how are you doing this morning? I am happy this morning. Happy. I'm happy, I'm happy to announce it is a day of happiness for me in many, many ways. And we are met with the provocative title, Should You Even Be Happy? Wow. Now, of course, he's feeling this way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Our producer behind the scenes did this intentionally. Folks who joined us last Wednesday, you know, we talked about shoulds. We talked about imposing an expectation of an emotion. And, of course, what the contradiction is in that we don't reach our emotions by acts of will. They are results, not choices. So should you even be happy? Well, of course, the word even, the world we live in, my gosh, how can anybody be happy? Give in and then, you know, make your laundry list of what you think are the top issues in the news this week. But I think it's a great question. I think it's an important question. And James, I'm honored to be reviewing Leonard Peikoff's answers to this and related questions from the volume, keeping it real, bringing ideas down to earth. This is going to be good. And we just got some great news just before the show. So if I seem overly happy, I'll try to mute that down a little bit, at least until we reach some of the conclusions and jump right into question number one. The very first question you hand-selected for us today, and this is going to get us going. Leonard Peikoff was asked in preparation for his podcast series, is it true to say that objectivists should be generally happier and should live longer than other people? because they hold rational values and life as the standard. Now, before I get into Dr. Peikoff's answer, does this not sound like somebody questioning the premise of my Thursday show, Life on Earth? It does. <laughs> it's, I had you in mind particularly for these questions. I regard you as one of the world experts on this very topic, Robert. Um, yes, it sure does. Well, Leonard Peikoff, of course, is going to give a wise answer and address things which I wouldn't necessarily have thought of because he always does. So let me read the beginning of his answer here. Leonard Peikoff answers, well, I would say that human happiness and love as across the human race depend certainly on philosophy. The more rational a given period is, the longer people live and the happier they are. So to take the extremes, you can contrast the misery and very short lifespans of the Middle Ages with the situation in the 20th century. But that, that does not mean that any one objectivist is necessarily happier than a non-objectivist. If you're taking into account what I call an OPAR, the inner happiness, that is the integration of philosophy, to the point where you have an inner life like that of Howard Rourke, of self-esteem, purpose, reason then that will certainly arm you and give you a basic contentment that those without it will not have. But if happiness in the full sense is the union of your inner confidence with outer achievement, that may very well not be controllable in the field you went into. Or you may make an error through no fault of your own. Or a tragedy may strike in the form of an illness or an accident that deprives you of the attributes you need to succeed. Or you may choose work that's perfectly reasonable, but that is more than you bargained for. So a lot of your life is grief over trying to do this work. 
And yet you can't do any other work. So it's a rational choice, but it diminishes your feeling to that extent. Yet on the other hand, you would feel worse if you went elsewhere. There are a great many factors that affect your happiness if you include the outer world as well. A great many you'll be better equipped to deal with if you have a rational philosophy, but you may not necessarily be able to do so. And then in the next paragraph, he gets into, well, of course, if you live in a bad world, then no philosophy and no inner contentment or self-esteem is going to make you happy. We the living is the perfect example of that. And he goes on, but he right away it cuts off what nowadays would be called toxic positivity toxic and the simplisticness of objectivism regards in a psychological sense uh, being moral, not just having a good philosophy, but acting on a good philosophy uh, as psychologically both a necessary and sufficient cause for a kind of happiness. And if you have a correct orientation towards your life and your values, then even before you've succeeded, even if you're Howard Rourke in the stone quarry, to use his example, you'll still have this sense of inner contentment and peace. You, you are com you, you're not weighed down with the, let's take several examples, with the unearned guilt of, let's say, some religion or some Kantian ethics might impose upon you. On the other hand, you're not confused by uh, skepticism and, and subjectivism. You, you, in other words, you have confidence in your own knowledge. You have the correct orientation towards your values in your life. Whatever the world dishes out at you at that point, there's an inner contentment you're gonna have, no question. On the other hand, when we mean real happiness, there are existential real world conditions that can either make that impossible or make that possible. And uh, look, if, if I were to lose my wife of 25 years tomorrow, that would be an irretrievable loss. And there's nothing anybody in this universe could say that would stop me from feeling horrible pain and loss. There, that's just a reality that we face. Um, does my will my philosophy help maybe me process that and understand it and put it into context? I suppose, but it's such an enormous loss. I must feel suffering and unhappiness. Now, that's a specific thing. Can you imagine living in a concentration camp or like you like he points out in We the Living in a totalitarian dictatorship? If you're uh, or if you're a slave being whipped by your mask, no, you're never going to be happy. You cannot you simply don't have the existential conditions for true happiness. You, you don't have the conditions for value pursuit itself. If you live in a totalitarian dictatorship or if you're a slave or if you're in a concentration camp, those conditions simply make it impossible to be truly happy in the objectivist sense. You're just going to be miserable, uh, no matter how good your philosophy and no matter how hard you try. Uh, but the but all other things being equal, if you live in a free society, you you should. This is the benevolent universe principle. Uh, you should be able to expect success. It's the normal condition of virtue is to gain your values, and that orientation, just knowing that, gives you a psych the psychological precondition. You know, our friend Don Watkins has a wonderful phrase here. He says, happiness is not about the weather, it's about the climate. And there's something very profound there. So I've had a rough summer, for example, with a lot of grief and friends dying and so forth. It's been rough, but it, it is my orientation towards my values that got me through all that. It gave me sort of the climate 
to handle the specific weather that pummeled me pretty hard this year. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it brings to mind the old expression, climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And <laughs> yes, yeah, in, in, imagine if Imagine if the opposite was true, because sometimes people have that expectation that, you know, no matter what, if you're rational, you should be. Imagine if that was true. If you could be insulated from value responses by having the right values, that would be the worst thing in the world. We right. are not Stoics. No, no, no. And it's it, it, you can't let the Stoics build a wall against yourself to protect yourself from suffering and expect to gain values. No, you've got to take the risk. You've got to get over the moat in the fortress. You've got to go exploring. You've got to go taking risks and reaching out. And yes. because we're not afraid of dying, we want to achieve living. We want to achieve our values. We don't want to simply protect ourselves from disvalue like the Stoic. Yeah, absolutely. That is yeah. crucial. That is critical. And part of it is that experience. If we have, for example, a negative experience in romance early in life, that can turn us off to and make us escape gun shy, uh, you know, uh, gives, a, gives us a flinch response the next time we try. We've got to overcome that and keep taking those risks because next time, you know, all other things being equal, as I say, next time we still have a really good chance. So keep yes. out, out there pursuing your values because of this value orientation. Uh, that's really sort of a precondition of succeeding your values and existential happiness. But it also gives you a sort of psychologically proper orientation so that the world can't hurt you and you can keep taking those risks whatever pain the world dishes out at you howard rourke is a great example of just that he's able to endure the suffering and get through it because of his reality orientation his correct orientation to his values yes uh, bonnie in the chat by the way says what you're telling us you got some amazingly happy news, but you're not going to tell us what it is. How can I concentrate? <laughs> and it's well, funny fair. because I did well, the thing I always say, rest. never do that. I, I made my own mistake, which is never share if you're not willing to go the distance. I apologize for that, Bonnie. Um, you know, the Ayn Rand Institute just had an episode on privacy and the, the, the basis of privacy. I'd like to go a little further than they did with it because I don't know if they fully grounded it in that conversation, but they had a lot of good insights. And yeah, this is one of those privacy situations. I apologize for bringing it up. I felt only that I needed to justify our even greater uh, if, uh, enthusiasm this morning. But believe me, the topic is enough for that. So I couldn't resist it as a lead-in. I'm going to jump back to the Leonard Peikoff text because it's interesting. The question it asked, well, shouldn't we be happier? And we're going to talk about that all throughout this episode, but also shouldn't we be longer lived? Because, you know, we respect the facts of reality and reason, and so naturally we will live in a way that leads to greater health. And Leonard Peikoff says, as far as being long-lived, again, as I've indicated, it's generally true that people in rational countries and periods live longer, but longevity depends on a lot of factors over and above the philosophy that rules a country. It depends on diet and exercise and genes. The right philosophy will lead you to a better diet exercise and maybe even someday genetic engineering. But that doesn't mean we all have it right now, nor does it mean you're a bad objectivist if you don't consistently follow it. Now, that little bit there is tantalizing. If you don't consistently follow, here's where he goes. I don't know if it's true. And incidentally, side note, I've heard the same thing, and I believe it is true, but we'll see. I don't know if it's true, but they say that science has discovered that if you, in effect, starve yourself and take in 
one quarter fewer calories, you'll live much longer. Naturally, the people who do that endure many negative side effects. I know of one guy in Texas who has to wear a heavy fur coat in the Texas summer because he's freezing all the time. In other words, he's slowed his metabolism to such a point, but he's going to live more years. End quote. Now, this has come up before in the context of the pleasure police, but also the integration of values. Should you, you know, if you found out that you could live on stones, twigs and water, eat grape nuts for breakfast every morning. I think that's what's in that cereal. You could live much longer, but that's all you're allowed to eat. Well, there are great jokes on this line, right? You know, kale may extend your life for 10 years, but it's 10 years of misery. (laughs) If all I'm eating is kale, why would I want to live 10 more years? (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe you don't live longer. It's just so boring. It feels like forever. (laughs) That's come up in in, in discussions of should people smoke cigarettes? Oh, well, that's more of... Well, That's there's a real a challenge to integrate of, that one. There's a whole variety of risky behavior yes. that actually can enhance our lives. And we're taking calculate. Let me give you a classic example. Going to the moon for the first time was an enormously risky thing. People actually died on the ground here on Earth in experiments trying to get in space. People almost died in outer space. <coughs> you know, the famous Apollo 13 story. These people were taking a life and death calculated risk, but to achieve an enormous value. And, uh, you, you, you know, uh, it, longevity depends when you were asking how long a life is. Uh, there's the classic line from uh, Homer, right, where Achilles, the hero of the Iliad, is given a choice by the gods. You see, he could get, he have it a short, glorious life where he would achieve all sorts of things and be remembered forever. Or he could have a long, boring life and no one would ever remember him and he would never accomplish anything. He yes. chose the short achievement-filled life of glory. Uh, I'm not sure it's ever that clear a decision. We're never told by the fates of the gods which way it'll happen. What we're doing is we're actually taking a calculated risk to make our lives better, but it could end up shortening our lives, even though it was a rational, calculated risk to achieve the maximum. Um, that's to be borne in mind here. It's, it's not as though longevity is the goal, If I was to live, for example, 80 or 90 or 100 years in that concentration camp where we said happiness, true happiness was impossible, would you? No, I'd rather, frankly, live 50 or 60 years of excitement and joy and romance and passionate value pursuit and then have, say, 90 years all in a concentration camp. Yes. You know, bringing up the astronauts is a great example. And, you know, not just on the ground, but consider, you know, we all know about Challenger. There have been missions where the, the they simply blew up yeah. and people accept that risk. But there are other risky professions. Uh, should you pick a profession where you never you know, walk up a flight of stairs? So, <laughs> yes, this is obviously not just about getting the maximum number of minutes in your life. Exactly correct. Now, it is true since we have we hold a lot human life as our standard of ethical values. It is true, all other things being equal, you will say, can compare yourself to say one of these tortured ascetic mystics who are constantly uh, depriving themselves in their body. Uh, I would expect them to have shorter lifespans, all other things being equal. But you don't know if you have some genetic illness, you could be hit by a bus tomorrow. That has nothing to do with your virtue. Uh, On the other hand, if you are mindful of your own life, and in a principled way, taking care of yourself in a basic way, all other things being equal, you should live longer. I would note 
that very, very many people who have been associated with Ayn Rand have lived into their 80s and 90s. Uh, and I find that to be no accident. Uh, you just say that. <laughs> I find it enormously heartening that the man who wrote this book is still alive, still with us, even making the occasional annual appearance despite being retired from the field. So that is a good thing, too. And because we're giving counterexamples, I wouldn't want anybody to walk away saying that, oh, they're recommending recklessness. No, we're recommending rational risk tolerance. No, no, no. If I were to try and be an astronaut, that would be absolute recklessness. Yeah. <laughs> Let me make it plain. It has to be a rational. <laughs> First of all, there has to be a high value you're achieving, and there actually has to be a rational chance and means of you're accomplishing it. Uh, so, no, I'm not asking people to go uh, free climbing El Capitan <laughs> unless that really, really is your great passion. And I suspect that's rare for people, but why take a risk that isn't, the risk isn't as, the value you're getting isn't as important as the risk you're taking. That makes no sense. Imagine if your life, a substantial part of your life was themed on space travel. You're not an astronaut, but say you're 90 years old and you decide to go into space. Would that be irrational? Well, ask William Shatner about that. Exactly. Exactly. For years, he played, you know, a futuristic astronaut in outer space. And now, you know, a lot of his friends and colleagues have already passed away. But he goes up into outer space to have that experience. What? Come on. You know, a dear friend of mine, his mother finally went skydiving in her late 80s. And you can understand sort of the different risk calculation that's going on. That sounded thrilling to me. But, you know, I'm going to wait until <laughs> the potential loss isn't so terrible. That makes perfect sense to me. Yes. So I want to jump to the second question. But first, thank you for the interesting questions and comments we're getting in the chat. Now, if you want to bump that up a little bit, hit that dollar sign, give us a super chat. Any super chats that you put into the chat, not only will get more attention from James and from me, but will support the Ayn Rand Center UK. And if you do that, you will have our eternal gratitude because the Ayn Rand Center UK is the channel this show and so many other shows with outstanding content are on. If you're not a member of the ARC UK yet, go to aynrandcenter.co.uk and click become a member at the top or just follow the link in the chat. Our producer will put that in there for your convenience. But thank you. Thank you, everybody who's joining us now and, of course, joins us after the fact. And given all of these good people, and all of these examples we can give, I love the William Shatner story. Yeah. It might seem like the next question, well, maybe we should check the premise, but let's go right to the question because Dr. Peakoff was asked, well, how do I stay happy in a miserable world? Well, I, I think uh, imagining that this is a miserable world might be a little hyperbolic, but I get it. <laughs> Absolutely get it. Well, there's plenty of bad news in the world. Yes. My gosh, it's not as though the news is normally filled with good stuff. Uh, when we hear about the economy, when we hear about crime, when we hear about, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, that's not happy stuff. When we hear about students, for example, going to university and having to do ideological battle just to get, uh, you, know, um, you know, their ticket punched so they can go on to a career. Uh, there are all kinds of really horrible things going on in this world, and they cannot, we can't shirk from an honest, direct awareness of them. So uh, uh, I have to say there's a theme that you have, Robert, that I very much agree with. Uh, you know, there's this Pollyannaism, uh, you know, it cannot be, 
Happiness does not consist of becoming an ostrich and putting your head in the sand and evading the truly bad news that the world so often is filled with. Um, it can't be that. It must be, um, it must, we have to find happiness uh, despite many, many times in each one of our lives, there is going to be a certain degree of challenge and unhappiness. And we have to find a means by which uh, we can cope with challenges. And frankly, philosophy is the means by which we can cope with challenges in life. It's being armed in effect with philosophy that uh, sort of makes it possible. Um, Daniel, I noticed that we've sort of lost Robert there. Uh, yes, I'll message him. I understand. Well, I can continue, I think. <laughs> Unfortunately, Robert was my place in, in the book on this. So um, Dr. Peikoff's answer is a gem. I'm so sorry. I was not prepared. Uh, please give me a moment. It should be page 226, 226. Thank you very much. Oh, Robert's coming back. Ah, very good. <laughs> Robert is much better at reading these. Please forgive us, folks. Um, Robert's much better at reading these and has been geared up, I hope. <clears throat> but we have to, it is. All right. Sorry about that. Well, it's quite all right. I was Can just, you believe I made the same mistake I made? Well, it's been a few months, but now I've done it twice, so that's unacceptable. <laughs> um, one of the machines that makes this possible is a laptop computer, and... Uh, I forgot the, to put the charger on it. It's not on the charger. So now it is. And uh, I will not leave you again. So sorry about that. Um, I was we, just point that there are horrible things in life. There yes. are challenges that we face. It's not like the news is good when I read the papers or look at TV. I hear and see, read a bunch of bad news. Um, and in personal lives, horrible things can happen. Um, how do we cope? with the suffering and problems of the world. And I was just about to read Dr. Folks looking up Dr. Peacock's answer. What is his uh, answer? And, and what I appreciate about his answer is he, he will throughout the, the several questions you, you mentioned, bring up Howard Rourke, which I think is a great idea. He says, of course, the best policy is to be neither depressed nor angry, but self-sufficient in exactly the way Howard Rourke is portrayed in The Fountainhead. But even before that, and getting back to our episode from last week, uh, the idea of emotional shoulds and feeling I should do this or I shouldn't feel this. He says, first of all, I don't quite equate depression with anger. No, depression comes from giving up. You feel that you can't do anything. Your values are lost. So what's the point? And you can feel that way temporarily. But I think anger is a much better emotion to feel because the idea of anger is that, well, this is intolerable and must be wiped out. In a way, it's the opposite of depression. Right. If you have to choose between the two, I'd choose the angry side and do what you can to fight the thing that is making you angry. So again, if you're feeling anger or any particular emotion, the reaction isn't, it's bad to feel that emotion. That's a bad emotion to have. You may find out you don't have good reasons to feel the emotion, but what you address is not the emotion, but the reasons. Yeah. Wait a so minute. I, if you experience a significant loss uh, and you're depressed, uh, that's perfectly natural. Uh, don't beat yourself up for that. You've just experienced a loss. Um, and if it's an irretrievable loss, 
some depression is going to hit you and, and happen. There's going to be suffering there. On the other hand, philosophy is what arms us on the other side to turn a situation that might otherwise be simply depressing into a situation where we can do something about it. And if it's a situation where we can do something about it, even if it's just on the level of ideas, uh, then the correct response is anger at this injustice. If it's a human-caused thing, if it's a human-caused, man-made bad thing, we get angry at it, and anger is a perfectly healthy response to injustice. And all the man-made evils in this world boil down to some kind of injustice, generally speaking. Sure, may people make innocent mistakes, but the, the effect of those innocent mistakes is minuscule compared to the effect of mistakes that people could know better on doing. And if we have the correct philosophy, then we know to feel this righteous sense of anger. And this is where philosophy really helps us. It gives us a good clarity on that righteous sense of anger. We can reduce to philosophical, ethical principles all the way down to A as A. Uh, we can reduce the uh, injustice to a firm understanding so we can feel anger. And I'll go even further. We can even feel disgust and hatred with perfect and pure, <laughs> uh, guiltless uh, 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 hatred and anger. Because if there is a Hitler in this world, hatred is the correct response. If there yes. is injustice in this world, anger is the correct response. Get pissed off. Yeah, injustice calls for it. And it's Damn not right. just an emotional release valve. It's the correct affect. <laughs> Yes. And, and the point is made in objectivism that you cannot love anything without hating just as much that which seeks to destroy that which you love. I couldn't say it better. Yes. So real quick, the Howard Rourke point that, uh, because we'll come back to this, Leonard Peikoff says, of course, the best policy is to be neither depressed nor angry, but self-sufficient in exactly the way Howard Rourke is portrayed in The Fountainhead. On a scale not involving the corruption of the whole world or the whole country, he is someone who meets obstacle after obstacle, failure after failure, the destruction and defeat of his values. But he doesn't become depressed or angry because he's too selfish. He's too wrapped up in himself and his work. If he wanted a crusade, which he very well could, but that wasn't relevant to the novel, he would do it. In a way, he kind of does that in his courtroom speech. Right. Uh, but then he would be involved in, but then he would be involved in what he's doing and his essential attitude would be, well, I live my life, including fighting my intellectual battles as part of my life. I won't let the corruption all around me get to me and make me essentially a depressed or angry person. And Leonard Peikoff goes on, God knows that's hard to do. <laughs> but if you can do it, even partly, you are able to combine commitment to fighting the world with being living in your own world. Obviously, I don't mean psychologically. Uh, wow. Just to stop the quote there for a moment, he's not, he's not arguing for alienation or, or right. a separation of the inner and the outer. Right. Uh, he, he goes on, focusing on the values and achievements that you're going to achieve and encounter, while at the same time being able to go out, smash the enemy, and then come back. <laughs> but that I is, that. I know, hard to do. It is. But you know, the Howard Rourke example is great, because, spoiler alert, just a little spoiler alert, um, uh, Howard Rourke develops perhaps his, the closest friendship with another guy in, in his whole life with a newspaper magnate 
who has spent a good deal of his newspaper career trying to destroy Howard Rourke. And Howard Rourke, the guy says, how can you possibly be my friend at first? Look at what, all that I've done to you, my paper has done to you. Howard Rourke cuts through all that. No, 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 this is you and me. I know the paper is over there. It, it, he, he doesn't feel anger. He doesn't feel resentment. He doesn't, he sees the value of this other person and nothing else matters to him when he discovers the value of his friend. And wow, I, you know, it's true. It's, it seems psychologically unbelievable in one sense, but that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of security that a good philosophy and a good orientation towards your values makes possible. He's not walking around with resentment and bitterness and when uh, the most famous line, another little spoiler alert from the Fountainhead, one of the most famous lines is when Ellsworth Huey comes upon Howard Rourke at a construction scene and says, okay, Mr. Rourke, and he's the architecture critic who's done most to help destroy Howard Rourke's career. Okay, Mr. Rourke, tell me what you think of me. And famously, Howard Rourke says, but I don't think of you. In other words, the Ellsworth Tuies or the newspaper that's attacking him, that is not his focus. His focus is on his own life, his own value achievement. And you'll notice how he reaches out again and again. He's not just in the courtroom speech making his world better. He's reaching out to potential clients and potential friends. And so Mike, the construction worker, or Stephen Mallory, the sculptor, or clients of his, uh, the commission his buildings. He actually develops these positive relationships because he is reaching out. He is taking risks. Um, Howard Rourke doesn't stop living. He just doesn't take all that negative stuff seriously. It's not so important to him that it's ever going to affect his happiness, his value, his orientation towards his positive values. What a model! Now, I, I'm not. I'm not that good. I have to admit, I'm going to feel bitter and anger. Uh, anger at these injustices, but Howard Rourke is an amazing model. It's that stuff that we don't have to take seriously if we don't have to. If something really is your enemy, if something is your foe, only deal with a wonderful line Ayn Rand has, only deal with evil and suffering insofar as it takes to deal with it. Then move on to your positive orientation. Deal with that, get it out of the way, but then Make the primary focus of your life, your value pursuit, your orientation to your values. Um, that is priceless advice. Yeah, and, and you, there's an important lesson there about a hierarchy of values. You mentioned uh, Howard Rourke's relationship with Gail Winand. And it could be a little bit spoilery, but eh, yeah. not too much so. And, it's, and the plot is rich enough. That, <laughs> but it's interesting that Howard Rourke has so many close abiding friendships in this book and friendships that last throughout the course of the rest of his life. People think of Howard Rourke as isolated or stoic and not very friendly. He, he's, he's enormously friendly. He's deeply loyal. He values his friends and he understands that hierarchy. It doesn't take anything away from his friendship with, with Sean Xavier Donegan, with Mike, um, that he has even more of a kinship with Stephen Mallory. Right. Or even more of a kinship with from with with Henry Cameron, right. but there's a hierarchy there, and so when he talks to Gail Winan, and Gail Winan is expecting Howard Rourke to give up on him, and Howard Rourke uh, is telling Gail Winan, "Whatever you do, don't give up your fight, not for my sake, but for your own sake." And he says, "I couldn't say this to Stephen Mallory, but I'm saying it to you. I couldn't say this to Henry Cameron, but I'm saying it to you." You know, this was the person above anybody else, save one person who he loves more than anybody else in the world. 
And he knows that and he's willing to live it. And he will let everything lesser go in order to stand up for his values. He does eventually, of course, has to fight for that one person who does matter more. Oh, I'm speechless. You put it so beautifully, Robert. Well, back to anger, because I want to read our third question here real quick. Can't anger be a good response if it is self-assertive, an emotional reaction to an injustice? And Leonard Pigoff answers, well, I didn't intend to say that anger is always wrong. I don't know what I could have said that led to that. Anger is a response, not only to an injustice, but to an evil of some kind. Assuming you have perfectly, or excuse me, rationally defined evil, anger can be absolutely a reaction to an evil perfectly legitimate and a perfectly valid reaction. For instance, take the scene in the Fountainhead. I love that we're going back to the Fountainhead so much in this episode. Take the scene in the Fountainhead where Rourke goes to Mallory's room for the first time. And he sees all the Kish sculptures that Mallory has been forced to do. And he picks one up and smashes it against the wall, murderously angry. You couldn't live if you couldn't feel anger, especially in today's world. But there's another kind of anger, and that would be, for instance, Jim Taggart's anger at Cheryl or at Dagny, where he resents their virtue and is angry in a negative, hostile, destructive, nihilist way. So you can't say anger per se, but certainly if the values involved are rational, there are many cases where you can get angry. The commonest cases are maybe where you have expected X from a dear friend and they delivered non-X. And you're just enraged that that could happen. Sometimes there's a good explanation and sometimes there isn't. But anger is entirely natural. So again, we get back to, we uh, unquote Dr. Peekoff, we shouldn't be repressing our emotions or even judging our emotions. Rather, we should be judging the, the thoughts that lead to them, the actions that led to them. And even then, I wouldn't be too quick to judgment. First, understand. Right, and then right. Judge. But let yourself feel it. The anger itself is morally neutral, whatever its cause. The anger itself is morally neutral, whatever its cause. Now, it's true. We should do some introspection. Is your anger because there's a real evil in the world that you're reacting to? Or is your anger at some perceived evil that was really is your resentment of the good, as in the James Taggart case? Now, the anger is the anger, but I would do some introspection. Is your anger rooted in James Taggart resentment of the good for being the good? Or is your anger rooted in a real evil in this world? And now the anger, as I say, is morally neutral, but it is worth, and the only way we can figure this out is by introspection. Where is my anger coming from? Is it coming from a genuine evil or is it coming from some kind of resentment or envy or hatred of the good? That's the key. Yes. I love this comment from Bonnie in the chat. She says, well, I was looking for the happiness section and keeping it real starts at page 226. And and that's what we're talking about today. And she says, and on the way, skimmed the next to last section, objectivism and objectivists, which we've talked about on this show. She says, it looks fantastic. I had no idea such gems were here. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad we're spending a long time on this book, because they are, they're gems. And a lot of them are in the source material. You could read OPAR. You could go through the lecture courses. You could do the Sunday morning sessions with with James Valiant, and you would get enormous benefit. Although to do those, you do need to be a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK. Click that link at the top there. 
but yes, gems, virtue, just gems, and in in at least a form in which they're not presented in the other nonfiction. That is absolutely true. The the there's such great advice here about living philosophy, and that's what makes this project so exciting to me. And if I could just say on Sunday, if you, you are a paid subscriber to the Ayn Rand Center UK, we'll be having particular fun this Sunday. We're doing my 30 years with Ayn Rand before oh. we turn to. Rosie and I have finally decided what, what, what the course is going to be, objective communication next. Uh, but before we start in on that, we're going to have some fun and talk about Ayn Rand herself uh, and Leonard Peikoff's My 30 Years with Ayn Rand. Please, you can participate in the discussion. Just become a paid subscriber and subscriptions start at very low prices. Become a paid subscriber and you can participate in a really, these really, I think, uh, edifying discussions we have on Sunday uh, about Leonard Peikoff's work. So please do consider joining. Outstanding. And you now have two ways to participate in these. The, if you want to be in on the Zoom call, if you want to talk, if you want to fully participate, yes, become a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK. But many of these sessions are also live streamed on YouTube privately only to members of the YouTube. So on the YouTube channel, Ayn Rand Center UK, you see in the chat there, you see most of the folks have a little extra star by their comments. It's because we are all members on the YouTube channel as well. So please do that. You get access to a few other perks as well, recordings of things that were done in the past that are only on the private YouTube channel, and also some fun emoticons. You see some of those in the comments as well. We have great fun with that. So yes, two opportunities there, a very small uh, charge to be part of the Ayn Rand Center UK YouTube channel as well as being part of the Ayn Rand Center UK. Now, in discussing emotions, in discussing some of these topics that might be a surprise to newcomers to the philosophy, we talk about seven virtues and we've all got them memorized, rationality and honesty and integrity and productiveness and pride and in, uh, independence. And some folks will ask, well, what about other virtues? Well, I've been talking about those on Thursdays, but what about things like hope or solace. Those don't sound very objectivist, do they? Well, let's read question four here. What can a young person desperate over the state of the world and with no heroes, where can a young person find hope and solace? Of course, you knew, James, when you picked that question that I was going to love this. And Leonard Pigoff starts his answer this way. Well, here is one that I very much want to answer. It's from a youngster who is in great pain and who is desperate over the state of the world and says at one point, I have no idea where to turn. It's a question that different people ask in different ways. I think you have to start by saying you find it primarily only in yourself, not in heroes, well, perhaps heroes in art, but not heroes in life. No matter how bad the world, as long as we're not enslaved totally, you can still choose some kind of creative work and you can still find love. If Ayn Rand could do it, you can too. It's not common, it's not easy, but it's possible. And today you have computers to help you out. <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to stop right there and quote Bethany Ham Hamilton, who is a, a professional surfer who lost one arm in a shark attack and is still a professional surfer. And I love the quote from her in which she says, I don't need easy, I just need possible. Oh man, is that an inspirational quote? Wow. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really has to come from inside ourselves. What do we mean by hope? You know, the only source of any real hope has to come from ourselves. If we mean by hope, we're just sitting around and praying and hoping. That there's no virtue to that, in my view. That's just uh, you know uh, fantasy, in effect. It's no has no more significance than say over worrying about something. You know whether you're the quote optimist or whether you're the quote pessimist. If you're just sitting around on your hands and not doing anything about it, um, there's no virtue to that. If, however, from your from your sense of self, you have this this Howard Rourke attitude, you'll have this sense of possibility, and that'll keep you going. But it's got to come from inside. Boy, what a great answer. Yes. Now, Leonard Peikoff will get controversial here. We, we could probably have a whole episode on the definition of the word hope. But right. certainly there... a lot of people use it the wrong way. And, and we'll, we'll get into this. Because Leonard Peikoff says, you say you want to find hope and solace. Well, hope is improper. Hope means you really want something but you're waiting for somebody to bring it along. Ah, if that's what it's you a, mean by hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a passive emotion. Right. Assuming you have a, don't have a terminal illness, you're too young to despair. Remember, this was a young person who asked him this question. He says, I grant you that to be all alone is a difficult plight, but I think there are enough ways to find others, like objectivist groups or reasonable friends where you can live to some extent in the kind of world that would make you feel less alienated from everybody. You have to remember that it's not true that everybody is either a hero or a villain. Most people have good elements and bad elements. You get wow. through life and even enjoy other people to the extent that you focus your relationship on what's good about them and keep away as far as possible from what's bad. I also think that you'd feel somewhat better about the world if you start actively fighting to improve it rather ah. than feeling I'm waiting for solace ah. and to stop for a moment there. See, this is the problem with most, most of the time when people use concepts like hope and solace. Yes. It is passive. Like I say, they're sitting on their hands. It implies, hope implies no more than an internal wish. It doesn't imply that you're acting on it or even believe you can act on it. And that's really the stuff that is, if you want to use the word solace properly, the only real solace is my is my understanding that I can do something about it. What can I do about it? Uh, <laughs> frankly, uh, if your solace is simply, oh, well, comfort me because, you know, this is just a hopeless situation. Of course, this is the formula for misery. That's not a happy person who's sitting around hoping and praying. The happy person is not sitting around hoping and praying. They're figuring out what they can do and they're starting to do it. And when you yes. do that, you're, you're already on the road toward happiness and fulfillment. You're already stepping away from this hopeless, depressed state this poor kid's in. Yes. And the way I put it is hope without action implies helplessness and, ironically, hopelessness. Exactly. Exactly. If all you have is prayer, it's a kind of, I've given up. Only some supernatural force or some fate or God can possibly pull me out of this. Uh, there's nothing um, uh, human beings can do to fix the situation. Now that's hopelessness. Yes. And Leonard Peikoff goes on, instead of wanting to meet somebody admirable, become somebody admirable. Oh. And then maybe the better people who are feeling like you do, alone and lost, will gravitate to you. I'd also say that loneliness is not the worst possible thing in life. 
Ah. A good thing, but it's a bit better than some other states. I yeah. love the uh, the quote that's uh, you know popular in objectivism. Ayn Rand said, "He who fights for the future lives in it today." You know, it's a more rational take on you know be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, really, change your own life, and that right. becomes part of your world. That becomes your world. I want to echo this. You know, the, the more I concentrated on improving my own soul and being the best person I could be, I was astonished at how I, it became that itself, that process itself became a magnet for virtue. Suddenly, people who are not sharing that orientation, people who are not sharing the same kind of passion for life and rationality and value orientation that I have were uh, repelled by me, repelled by my attitude. And those who were virtuous were sort of like a magnet drawn to me. And it's funny, it really is. You draw, it, it, And it's no accident, it's simply the law of cause and effect. People are gonna notice that and admire that and respond to that. And those are the virtuous people that you, that you wanna include in your life. Those who don't respond to that and are repelled by that are people you wanna avoid. And to that extent, and like Picoff says, most people are mixed bags. To the extent they are virtuous, they will respond to your virtue. To the extent they are not virtuous, they'll have a negative response to your virtue. And that in itself is kind of a filter and a natural cause. You know, it's not magical karma. Virtue does not produce happiness by some mystical karma. It is the simple law of cause and effect. The moral is the practical, is the happy. You're, you, you, the preconditions and the, and the causes of happiness are, in fact, the practicality of being morally principled and having a correct orientation towards your values. Yes, yes. And uh, to wrap it up, uh, question: this question, Leonard Pigaud says, I think you should take as a model as far as possible, Howard Rourke. <laughs> he is not disgusted <laughs> by the world. He ignores it. He pursues his goal. He doesn't look at each person and say, I can't stand this person. He's concerned with himself, his goals, his creativity. If, however, you focus to that extent on other people and their character and what they're doing wrong and make that the determiner of your life, you're literally being an altruist. You're putting the behavior of others above your own life qualities and requirements. It's hard to be an individualist and to find yourself alone in the world as it is. But it is possible. People have done it. You know some people who have done it, even if only for the fact that they have written certain books. So yes. we get we get back to Howard Rourke, which is always a good place to get back to. And uh, yes, well, I'm just looking at our chat here. We we have a super chat. Oh, and cool. very much appreciated. Uh, 20 Swedish Krona from Oliver, who, who says to James, how does one know one is happy? Hmm. Wow. A very interesting question. It, it, an emotion hits us. It's, it's not a, you know, it requires introspection even to know what we're feeling, or much less why we're feeling. If I feel a warm happiness, that's not going to tell me the full nature of that emotion. I have to check it out. I have to, you know, there's a great psychologist uh, who once had a great uh, uh, rule in life. Uh, when you have an emotion, translate it into language 
what is this emotion saying to me? If I'm feeling, say, anger at something, what is this? I'm just feeling anger. Well, identify what is the object of the anger? What is the value that's under threat that, you, that causes you to feel this? And that requires introspection. So, yeah, I feel pleasant. I feel really satisfied. And I just get this warm glow. That is a good thing. But you have to do some introspection. How deep is this? How, how widespread is this? What is the, why am I feeling this now? Um, and when you do that, then you can distinguish, say, a momentary pleasure from, say, a, a bite of tasty food uh, or a pleasant sunset or a piece of, you know, just this one piece of music from your or from your overall feeling of happiness. Right now, it's in, for example, in my life, I'm feeling a spreading happiness uh, currently in my life, and there's no one object to it. There's so many things that are making me feel happy right now that I can't quite put my finger on the one thing, but I do know one thing. All of these values that I've worked hard to achieve are now ka-ching, coming through, and that's starting to add up. And so I feel this by introspecting, I realize the pleasant glow that I'm feeling has to do with all kinds of things. And yeah, it's connecting to an even deeper thing, my value orientation to life. And when I see that total integration through introspection, I'm confident that what I'm experiencing is happiness. Now, I'm not denying that even that first glow can be different than, say, the glow of just a pleasure from eating a, taste, a bite of tasty food. Yeah, the happiness glow, it feels different even from the outset. There's something much bigger, more profound. Uh, you know, uh, I can feel it uh, affecting my entire day and life and everything that I'm, uh, I, I bring it to every situation in my day. And so there must be something much much deeper here, much more like the happiness we're talking about, as opposed to a, say, a momentary pleasure or a momentary joy. That you can probably distinguish right away, but you really can't know what's going on until you do some introspection. How deep does this go, and why am I feeling? Yeah, yeah. Joy is joy is. Uh, excuse me. Happiness is, is in a way, uh, despite being an emotion and being immediate and visceral, it's a higher level of state. You know, in introducing the topic uh, happiness, Leonard Peikoff says that uh, just as the body has the pleasure, pain, sensations to protect it, consciousness has two emotions, joy and suffering, as a barometer of the same alternative. And so we have the lowest level of pleasure or pain, and then we have the next level up of, of joy or suffering. And then he says this brings us to happiness, which is a fundamental and enduring form of joy. And then he gives you know, Ayn Rand's statement about happiness, because we're asking, well, how do you know when you're happy? And Ayn Rand wrote, happiness is a state of non-contradictory joy, a joy without penalty or guilt, a joy that does not clash with any of your values and does not work for your own destruction, not the joy of escaping your mind, but of using your mind's fullest power, not the joy of faking reality, but of achieving values that are real, not the joy of a drunkard, but of a producer. So yeah, knowing you're happy in the moment, well, you can, if, if you're honest about your own feelings, if you're willing to feel what you feel, you can feel that, but experiencing the state of happiness described in objectivism, you know, then, you, then I would want to examine, yes, what, what, is my, what are my day-to-day -day pleasures What's my persistent level of joy? And then is that adding up to right. happiness? The, when, when you, you work for 30, let me put it this way. I worked for 30 years on writing a book. 
And when it finally happened, I can tell you, I felt all this tension and anticipation and worry and positive feelings and good feelings as I'm going up to it. But when it happens, I, something, I don't know, that book arrived, my book that I've been working on for so much of my life arrives and I'm holding it in my hand. I feel a kind of elation that I've never, ever, ever felt in my life. I knew just from the sensation that this was a kind of joy and happiness that's unique, a metaphysical experience, a kind of joy that says, this is what life is all about. This is what makes life worth living. This is what it was all about. And so even before I'd done any introspection, I knew this was an elation of a higher kind uh, that I'd ever experienced before. But it was only in a pre looking back and understanding that this was the concrete that made visible and emotionally real to me all of that work and effort and thought and planning and preparation and fretting and so forth that I put into the, all this. I knew from the outset this was a special kind of joy. On the other hand, I, it took introspection and, to really appreciate and to feel all the aspects of that joy. I let myself just wallow in that joy and remember all the all that I did to make that possible, all the hard work and late nights and all that. Suddenly, ka-ching! nothing like that in the whole wide world. There really isn't. Yes. So happiness in the moment, you experience that directly. Happiness as the result of achieving your, your values. Well, there, you, there you're going to look more over the long range and not right. just in time, but over the fullest context of your values. Right. You know, Leonard Peikoff was asked that. He said, well, isn't in, in a Q&A, isn't isn't the objectivist idea of success and happiness going over the long term? And Leonard Peikoff said, no, you can't achieve happiness even in the short range by vice, by contradictions. And he, and he made the point that it's not just about the long range over time, it's about the full context. Yes, and even before I gotten that book in my hand, at every year of my life up to those 30 years, I was in a different position I was generally happy because I was doing what I wanted to do. I, I was aiming for my value. I was I knew all other things being equal, I could do it. That gave me a positive attitude toward life. So I would say in the broadest sense, I was happy the whole time. But in achieving that value, by finally getting that, I'm achieving a kind of emotional joy, which is incomparable to anything else. That's the only yeah. way I have of putting it. Uh, we have more super chat. Kindred Amy is in for $1.99, sends a little love our way. Apollo Zeus with two pounds sends a heart. So there's some love there. And finally, Johnny Ruiz is in for $20 large. He says, I keep missing your live broadcasts due to my work schedule, but I am getting them on Spotify. Here's my support. Johnny, thank you for your support. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, it's so cool. You can get Robert Nacer on Spotify now, folks. Uh, don't, that is... Mm, for all of us who use Spotify, what a wonderful thing. Congratulations yeah. to all I, of I us. Have, you, Robert. I have to say, too, I, I was thinking about this because the early episodes of Life on Earth are being added to the podcast distribution system, Spotify podcasts, Apple podcasts, wherever you take in your podcasts. Right. So I have to say that um, one of the very first shows I did was called Pollyanna in the Paperless Office. Where is my flying car? <laughs> people sometimes think that I don't address, you know, uh, causes reasons for pessimism and the challenges of life. But I think that show dovetails off this one pretty well. Yes. I had written in my notes for this episode, and James, you'll, you'll see both what's good about this and what's wrong about it. I had written in my notes, 
you know, there's an irony. The best people out there, and you know, I'm thinking of Howard Rourke, the best people out there don't let evil matter. While those of us who are still striving or, or maybe still mixed in our philosophies, we are the ones who are outraged. Boy, that's so true. You know, Ayn Rand described herself as Dominique in a bad, as, as herself as, but Dominique as herself in a bad mood. Let me get that right. Uh, Ayn Rand was still affected by the world in a way that Howard Rourke was insulated from. I think Howard Rourke or, is much more based on her husband, uh, Frank O'Connor, who really was, I mean, he was Teflon. It was, it, other people's opinions were just water off a duck's back for him in a way that it wasn't quite for Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand would see the injustice of other people's reaction more than he would. And it would piss her off and it would get her depressed. And even Ayn Rand was affected by the world in this way. So if she was, we can get angry and depressed sometimes. It's perfectly normal. Nor does it mean that you're not overall a happy person. Um, emotion, there are, connected to last week, there are no emotional shoulds. There are reasons why people feel angry and depressed. It's yes. not fun. It's not fun, but it's the appropriate reaction to pursuing your values and having values in the first place. Uh, but if you do have the correct orientation towards reality and your values, then overall, you're going to bring a climate of happiness, no matter what the weather you're facing. Outstanding. I think one of the challenges for Ayn Rand is she understood the Howard Rourke perspective because she created it, or at least created the character that exemplified it. Right. But she was as much a John Galt. When I tell people, you know, focus on the positive, be like Howard Rourke, I have to put in the caveat that some of us, our passion is the fight. Some of us are policemen. Some of us are soldiers. Some of us are philosophical leaders. And it's okay that, you know, you're going to spend more than 3% of your time angry. I was given 97-3 rule. You're going to spend a lot of time being angry. And because that's your passion. I'm a warrior. I admit it. I spend a good chunk of my life getting pissed off at the world. <laughs> but trying to be targeted and selective where, I, where my anger can actually have, and I can act on that to do something against it and where I can target it uh best and do something about it um it really makes little sense to dwell on an emotion and you can't do anything about it but if you can do something about it if that is your profession feel anger get pissed off let that motivate you to do something about it yes. absolutely and your little victories or big victories in that that is where your happiness will come from so should you be happy the short answer is there are no shoulds when it comes to emotions, but the full context answer is ultimately, and other things being equal, I love Leonard Peikoff's expression, other things being equal. Yes, you absolutely should. Well, I'd be distinguished the should here. Yes. If you're not happy, I wouldn't say bad you, right? right? That would be an emotional should. You're bad for not being happy or you're good for being sad. I've done, maybe it's a different orientation altogether. However, if I'm going to ask a deeper meta question, is happiness a good thing to be? Would we, all other things being equal, would we want to be happy? Would that be a good motivator? Would I be able to enjoy my life? Would I be more motivated to reach my values if I were happy? Yes. So if there are ways that I can improve my happiness, is that a good should? See, a should can go to action 
a good can go to thought. So, Robert, should you be taking the actions which will be more likely to make you happy? I'm not saying whether your happiness or sadness is good or bad, because it ain't. It's morally neutral. But if I'm asked, if we ask the question abstractly, should we all be striving to be happy if we can? I, that's a no-brainer question. That's a do. That's a should for a do, not a should because of a feeling. We should do the things that are more likely to make us happy. That is a moral should. Well, that's a great wrap. I'll steal a phrase. I'll steal two phrases from the founding fathers and say that I will pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. James, thank you for another outstanding discussion. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. One last minute super chat equal to reality. Thank you for the two pounds. Very much appreciated. And we look forward to talking to you in a week with another Peak Off Wednesday. Thank you.